but the downside of the the place is they it's like the funding arm of like a religious like a new is it the moonies is it the moonies I, it may be. Eric, is it the I can't remember. I, <laughs> I can't remember who it is now that I. Uh, Daiso Wikipedia. It's. Uh, I thought. I thought Shinzo. Ooh, hello, I thought Jeez. Shinzo died to prevent you from ever having to buy support the Moonies. Hold on. There's a spider on my microphone that I'm oh, going to have no. to ask to get off. Oh my god. Look at this. Look at this guy. He's he's gotten up out of his chair, ladies and gentlemen. He's walked across to the back side of the room. He's now standing on a table. He's trying to reach the spider with a broom handle. He's he's now taping two broom handles together because one broom handle was too close to get to the spider. So he's taping two broom handles together. I don't think this is going to work, Eric. I don't think it's going to work, Eric. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Got it. He says he got it. Now let's see if he just feeds the spider to his dogs. Maybe he's going to name the spider. I don't know. He's completely left the frame now. At least the part that I can see. So he could be doing some terrible things to the spider in the other room. I don't know what his policy is on spiders or the uh, torture and detainment of spiders. Er- Eric's <laughs> Eric's now walking back in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rapture happened. Eric Eric has a new necklace and two earrings, all made out of spider legs. Six legs on the necklace, one leg on each earring. So I'm guessing we are uh, we've taken care of the vermin. What's never ending to find a beginning that came before everything? Like kids with Dakotas discover the wonder in the ordinary. exhilarating <laughs> i can't wait for you to listen to back to uh, my, my description of what happened oh i heard it through the headphones you have no idea what i said yeah i taped two brooms together <laughs> uh the no one thought the, it was gonna work it would that you'd be able to reach across the room with the two broom handles taped together <laughs> the uh the box that i grabbed this is the closest flat thing to me to like, you know, match with the cup to catch the spider. A uh, cup circumference or a uh, diameter a little bit bigger than the box width. Mm. So we had to keep kind of shifting to keep the spider from going through. Then I looked in the cup to throw it outside. 
no longer in the cup, looked at the box, no longer on the box, Spider had come around to the other side where my hand was ready to attack. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. Because spiders are just there to kill humans. It's the only purpose they have, evolutionarily it's, speaking. Uh, it's, it's, you know... That's why we're I'm, so scared of them, because... In the ancient past, there was these giant armies of huge spiders that would just come into our villages and tear our heads off and rape our children. I just, I can't look at a spider right in front of my face. Can you? Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I've never had a thing with spiders of like any kind of, uh, maybe that's a weird part of my brain, which is why I would have died on the savannah at a young age probably <laughs> i just i i never had i never really had the fear of the spiders or like snakes that uh creepy crawly feeling that people get about that type of stuff i never had it as a kid i would just always pick them up and play with them and stuff you would play with spiders oh yeah oh yeah psychotic oh my god uh you know, even up in Texas, we had, like, tarantulas and stuff. Um, but then, like, in when I was in Honduras as a 13-year-old, uh, lots of spiders in the jungle to play with. Lots of different ones. Yeah, I guess you had a different type of uh, experience with nature than I did. I mean, you were a Boy Scout. No, I was, uh, I was a... I never made it past Cub Scouts... Because I was a royal ambassador in the Baptist Church, which is the the Baptist Church version of Boy Scouts, royal ambassadors. What's up with the uh, royalty? And we wore we wore denim vests. We didn't have stupid merit badge sashes. We had denim vests with badges on them. Cool denim vests. What did you sell? Salvation. <laughs> yeah. Your Just fundraiser indulgences. Yeah, we were we were really. <laughs> We were like real into Catholic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun. All fun and games. So how was your shows? They were great. I don't know if you can tell by the sound of my voice. It's not quite there. It's a little it's a little distant. Doing uh doing four sets oh over in only twenty hours, that's uh it's a little tough. It's a little tough on the old throat these days. Did you do <clears throat> two sets at the freak? Anniversary, uh, we anniversary? just did one. That was just a one setter on Thursday, and then Friday we did three hours at Twilight in Deep Ellum to get everyone ready for the Red River Rivalry Roundup. Oh, get everyone that was this weekend rev revved up. Is this the first weekend of the Texas Fair or the last weekend? This first Texas uh, last weekend was the first weekend, and it goes until like the next four weeks. Oh, it's only four weeks long? Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Gotta get out of here in time for Thanksgiving, you know. Uh, I don't think I ever went to the Texas State Fair. Never? Never. Never That's been wild. to the uh, Texas OU game or cared about it and never went to the fair. So it was, I would think that... It was like a big deal even for like homeschool kids because we had homeschool day and there would like be fair tickets given to the homeschool groups, you know, for the homeschool kids to go. 
but it would always end up coinciding with Texas OU weekend. <laughs> so for some reason, <laughs> they were, they were like gave all the homeschool kids the Friday tickets to the Friday before Texas OU. So it was always wild down there whenever we would go for homeschool week. It's like your rum springer. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and of course, it's like a bunch of just kids, you know, like my family was, where we all were wearing the same t-shirt that like our grandmother had made for us that had like blue bonnets on it because you know it's the state flower of texas and you're going to the state fair so you want to wear something representational of your state Mm -hmm. so your puffy paint uh blue bonnet t-shirts so and that you and all your siblings and everyone else kind of in your group all kind of wear looks the same um but once you get there the the only thing that i ever wanted to do starting in like 1989 was, away. No, was go to the giant uh, vert and half pipe that they had built outside of the Cotton Bowl on the north side of the stadium. And that's where Matt Hoffman's BMX experiment experience was coming down from Oklahoma. And just him and his redneck <laughs> BMX buddies would come and just do crazy BMX stunts on the vert ramps. And then they just ride around inside like on the floor or on the grounds of the fair with like their mm. pegs doing just like ground tricks and stuff like that. Flatland. Got so addicted to BMX just from that. Just watching Matt Hoffman try over and over again to do these crazy aerials and just crash and crash. And then everyone pumping up the crowd. I'm going to do it this time. <laughs> and he yeah. just, it was so cool. I would just be mesmerized by that forever. I didn't know they were doing that all the way back in 89. Yeah, I think they had done it even before that. That was just the first time that I had seen it. Um, like, I think they started doing that in like '86 or '87, doing the BMX big stunt thing at the state fair. So Matt Hoffman is regional. Yeah, he's from Oklahoma, Tulsa. Okay, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's always kind of cool whenever you find that stuff out, like how how those how big those people are. Their kind of origin stories, like you would. I would not imagine, oh yeah, BMX, like the main name that everyone around our age knows from BMX, it started, and it's not because he came to Dallas, that's why we know him, it's because he was the national, he had a video game named after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Like he, he the the Condor and all the big lore of him um, getting the highest, uh, highest vert and all that type of stuff that happened in like the early mid nineties. Like when he really like, uh, became the cover of every magazine, not just BMX magazines and all that type of stuff. And that was also when X games really started like 93 or 94 or whatever. Well, it's kind of funny because I remember, you know, uh, especially around that time, like Tony Hawk had, was probably the most popular skater, but he just did vert. Like it was that to me was not interesting to watch. And then Hoffman, the same way, was kind of this like more squeaky clean BMX feel compared to like Dave Mira that came like that clan of people that came after that. It was way more of a kind of street and gritty feel, Mm -hmm. you know, Um well, yeah, yeah. Hoffman was always much more of like a Super Dave Osborne daredevil type, <laughs> more right, than yeah. like a man. BMX is just my culture; it's my life; it's how I get to and from the convenience store every day. Just trying to, 
bunny hop all these curbs my, my <laughs> to and from yeah no, he he was the guy who uh had just a big piece of property and built a big giant plywood ramps to see if he could launch himself to the moon <laughs> yeah <laughs> having people pull him on motorcycles so he could get enough speed to get enough air <laughs> was he integral to the building of the woodward facility I'm not sure. I'm not sure. uh, There's like that gigantic. uh, I think you can skateboard there. Like they have different areas for it. Um, uh, Action sports, blah, blah, blah. No, not whatever. It's there's some like giant. Well, they probably have multiple campuses or whatever now, Mm. but it was. I don't know, multiple, multiple acres of different types of extreme sports like stuff where they had huge interconnected bowls and then like those, uh, like a series of half pipes kind of where it's like a spine. Mm -hmm. So you can like go and hit a half pipe or a quarter pipe and then land on a quarter pipe on the other side and keep going and stuff. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty wild. Always thought... Yeah, that's that's the dream. Make it there. And uh when all you got is like a tiny little kicker made out of dirt in Corinth, Texas, you're not going to be <laughs> developing too much skill. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the best 30 for 30 that ESPN did in my opinion is uh is the birth of Big Air, the Matt Hoffman one. And it does like a lot of it does talk about like they were having to just kind of figure out the mathematics of how to build ramps that would be able to get the kind of vertical air that they were looking for because no one had even built them like that big before or even knew like what would happen. <laughs> like they had to actually get like mathematicians out and physicists out to help them figure out how to actually launch someone 25 feet up above the coping. That makes me wonder, like, you know how skateboard trucks you tighten for vert and things mm-hmm. like that so that they're you're not wobbling when you're getting that speed immediately coming down yeah yeah i wonder if they have something on like their front uh like the fork to keep their front wheel from wobbling stabilized well yeah like more friction or something when matt's going for the record and you know he's crashing on like all the landings trying to get it because he it's hard to like get that high and then not have your body go into flail mode <laughs> before you yeah. like turn to come back down and then hit the ramp uh, to land. Um, and so lots of his landings are crashes because the front wheel goes wild up right when it comes back down onto the face of the of the half pipe. Yeah. Um, and so he loses it, you know, trying to get down to the back to the flat landing spot and it all gets shaky and going wild zigzagging on him and he flips over the handlebars and stuff like that a lot of the times a lot of bad concussions for matt hoffman i'm very concerned about his uh, well-being now later on in life i don't know if he's fully there you know it makes you wonder what the uh cte life is like for those early action sports people compared to uh football you know they were just angry all the time but is that a product of the sport that they were playing like you know just kind of the base chemicals going through your brain as it's being destroyed Mm -hmm. and what is the repeated chemical and emotion whereas action sports it's just kind of 
I don't well, know. Well, isn't it? Didn't Dave Muir commit suicide? Similar to Junior Seau. Oh, that study my brain sound, for CTE. That sounds right. I yeah, think Kelly Slater did. too. The no, surfer. He didn't. Did he really? I think so. I thought he was still alive. I might be getting Kelly Slater mixed up. Kelly Slater not dead. That's not good dead. news. Kelly Slater's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe, but, Jake or, but didn't I think, but I that. think he might have also complained about lots of concussion symptoms or something like that. Yeah, I think he did complain about it, <clears throat> like migraines, headaches, and stuff like that. He's fifty-one. Um, when Jake was describing that a uh, TV show that Des was on, mm-hmm. and uh, Tara Reed was on there, who Jake got extremely confused. Thought had died. <laughs> That's a tough years one. Ago. You know, we we it's it's kind of like, uh, do you want to live in the uni- Like you, do you want to live in the universe where Tara Reid died and Brittany Murphy made it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I We're going to find someone's going to do an expose and all the on the Brittany Murphy deaths and her husband's death and her mom's death soon enough. We're going to find out what caused it all. You know, that's a that's another actor that was famous possibly because they passed, but famous f- that I don't know what else they were in. Like the Brittany Murphy I only know was in that Ashton Kutcher like honeymoon movie. That's oh. the only one I know. Well, and most famous thing- probably Clueless. Oh, never saw that. Whoa, Eric, you got to see Clueless. That's a 90s movie. I know. That's why you got to see it. I'm good. It's got all the elements that you love. Yeah, I mean, turning I like, uh, turning a well-to-do uh, Beverly Hills high school into a, the stage of a Shakespearean type reenactment of people using Valley Girl talk rather than Shakespearean language. Is that actually what the movie is? Yeah, and not not so much as Ten Things I Hate About You, but uh, Clueless. Yeah, definitely. Huh. But it's very good. I th- I think it's a great movie. You know, I'll just take your word for it then. You'll like it better than Barbie. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Back when they had some grit, they could actually <laughs> use some subtle nuance and whatnot. Because they, they know how to make movies, you know. Um, We're just lay people. <laughs> there you go. So... Is that all you had to tell me? I don't want to jump, step on your toes. Oh no, that's that's pretty much all I had. What? How? How was your uh, Columbus Day? Don't celebrate that. Oh, uh, celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Okay. And it was great. Grilled out. Yeah, yeah, got a new grill. Got a grill because we've never owned a personal grill because we've never had a spot. Can't can't put a grill on a balcony, you know? That's a fire hazard. Uh, I don't know. It says you. <laughs> says the fire department. Um, yeah, it says, yeah. says your new age lefty liberal conspiracy bullshit California fire department. Exactly. Our old neighbor... <clears throat> Hey, have you uh, ever tried just watering the forest so it doesn't catch fire? I don't know. Maybe just take a hose and dampen it. Why aren't you guys doing that? We'll just drain any man-made lake from Texas 
because, uh, <laughs> you know, you guys are fine with the way nature is. And you right? guys are fine with stealing water. That's fine. Well, you don't want regulations <laughs> on those sorts of things. So who's going to stop us? Yeah, the... Uh, our old neighbor had one on the balcony, so we were like, oh, we'll see if he uses it. And then if he uses it, then, you know, we'll, we'll know that we can just kind of do this. Cause it was like a townhome complex, mm-hmm. never touched it. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first time. And we, we got like a charcoal one, built it ourselves. Okay. Um, really makes you appreciate the Scandinavians and their ability to. Uh, instruct you on how to build things without words without words yeah it was uh tricky at certain point you don't need that many different sized washers (laughs) (laughs) you know you might Um, so no we done it uh did you have like a ton of leftover parts that you're like oh i wonder what these are for (laughs) No, no, we, you know, uh, I, I'm married to an engineer, so we got it done perfectly the first time. Is it uh, gas or charcoal? Charcoal. All right. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, kind of iffy uh, in California, but the weather was nice yesterday. It's been pretty wet recently. It's been very foggy and dewy and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I know how to control the charcoal fire. We got a chimney to start the charcoal to. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which is necessary, but growing up, um, whenever my dad switched over to charcoal, he was just like, ah, we'll just keep throwing lighter fluid on this thing for the next two hours. Eventually, just keep it'll piling heat it up. up. Yeah. Um, do, you, then, do you do the extra secret trick of lining your chimney with, uh, with uh, newspaper first? So... Not going to use newspaper just because it is so dry out here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't want to, which I feel like it would cool before it hits the ground, but we don't need to test that. <laughs> you need you to know. dig You need to dig a giant pit in your backyard, at least like yeah. six feet deep. Fill the bottom of it with like two inches of water. Set the grill in there. Uh-huh. Then you're protected from like any potential fire starting I rig like a pulley system where I have to maintain tension as it's burning. The second it gets out of control, I let go of the rope and it falls into the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, uh, very excited about it, though. Um, it worked well. We got uh, actual charcoal. Like, Didn't mean to. Meant to get like the little bricks, but opened the bag up, and it was like the actual charcoal wood. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, maybe not as efficient. I don't know exactly why you would have the bricks versus the actual wood charcoal. I'd imagine packing is more efficient with the bricks. Yeah, I I think the briquettes are just like more powdered or pulverized material that's been coalesced back together. Yeah. Whereas the other ones are just actual shards of wood. So yeah. it's probably you're they're probably making a lot more money on the briquettes than they are on the charred wood. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. But it was great. Um no complaints on the food or anything. So Yeah, well, that-, that was my indigenous people say. How about you? I'm sure I'm sure it was well received. 
Well, we don't celebrate Columbus Day around in these parts. I know. So uh, DISD was full bore. We're going to do school. Oh yeah, school was on. And everybody, it was, here. It was weird because like uh, all the uh, the suburban outlying areas, they all had it off. But that's because they've always had Columbus Day off, and so now they just have it off. But I don't know if they still say we're off for Columbus Day, or maybe some of them do. I I don't know. But like uh, the the proper Dallas and uh, Fort Worth and stuff, they were uh, still in class. So weird, just just kind of weird little regional, you know, thing that's going on around here. <laughs> <clears throat> Although so they, the other thing that Texas started doing is like the schools are starting to do a fall break, kind of like a spring break. Yeah. So like Houston has this whole week off. Oh. But huh. we have, or Nikki has like fall break, but it's, they made it like a four, her next weekend is a four day weekend. It's like two days are fair days, which would have been for the students for fair day. And then she has two like teacher work days. So it's like a, sandwiched big long four-day weekend yeah that's kind of i don't know i feel like the new schedules are getting all weird but the i mean i don't know whenever i think about the science of education maybe this should be like a topic pedagogy or something like the uh the amount of time you have off in the summer you really do f forget a lot of stuff oh, people yeah. have looked into it like you don't you know it, but it's good to have those kinds of breaks for kids cuz i feel like it i don't know as far as uh quality of life mm -hmm. school can be quite difficult so i don't know the the japanese system of school where it's you're in school sort of year long but you have like three months on one month off okay and that like i don't know it feels like you that month off gives you time to decompress from whatever but you can uh you maintain the education that you've had mm -hmm. uh but you know of course at the same time the the education system is so rooted around you need to do well on these tests in order to get into this school. Other and it starts at like the preschool age. So, it. I'm not saying that in Japan kids are way more uh, <laughs> less stressed about school and stuff. Right, right. It's more just extracurricular schooling. Like one thing that I think probably is on the horizon, um, we've already seen it with a couple of school districts around here, Lancaster, and I believe Carrollton Farmers Branch is about to start doing it. Um, but uh, four day, four day school weeks. <clears throat> yeah, and then extending the this class year to being more of like a year round type of schedule, but just everybody goes four days, um, and then. Still figuring out a hybrid way of like providing childcare on the fifth day for like parents that have to work and all that type of stuff because the main reason school exists the way that it does is because we need to <laughs> provide childcare because it requires uh, every every household requires double incomes just to survive at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that that's that's sort of uh, the next thing I think that's coming is uh, is that and it's going to just be this 
cultural shift that either companies are going to have to really get on board with four day weeks because there's no child care for the extra day because all the schools That's have what done I'm it. Wondering. Or yeah. it's going to be the other way around where workers are going to only want to work four days a week and so companies will feel the pressure to give four day work weeks and then schools will feel more comfortable being able to do it but one's gonna one hand is gonna have to force the other i feel like you could easily make this case uh and i'm sure nikki will love this solution just sell it that if it's a four-day school week you have to pay fewer taxes because these teachers are only working four days a week That final day is kind of like a half day, so we don't really <laughs> yeah. need to pay them for that. Just cut, cut them all 20%. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how they get they You're like, oh, but we make up for it by everybody's going year-round. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but when those summer months are kind of lackadaisical. Right, right, right. You're right. just really reviewing the stuff because, yeah. Uh, I would be interested to know. I, I wish that there was more of a standardized federal education system to test those things out. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure there's a way to do it where you're not going to like screw up kids, you know? Oh, yeah. Around the world, there's different education models and stuff. So it's um, like, what is that in, is it Iceland or Norway or something where like nationwide they have zero homework? Yeah. They're like, kids do not do school outside of school. It is only within school. Um, We had a friend that moved to Sweden and he came back to Japan for a visit once. It was talking with us. And he said that uh, at his office, he like was kind of behind on something. So he stayed until like 510 uh, on a Friday and the boss that next Monday had a sit down meeting with him and he's like, we really need you to go home by five. Like you cannot be staying that late at work. (laughs) And solidarity with all the other workers, please do not work any extra time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's coming from the boss. That's not like the other, you know, workers are kind of pressuring him Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So it's, it's, you know, but we're the greatest country in the world, so, you know. Well, the the last little hot thing on, on education that I've sort of fomented, fomented in my mind over the last couple of years is I think the other greatest disservice that happens in America is that um, education is coupled to ages. And the way that education is geared is based upon these predetermined age slots that everyone fits into um and i think especially at the earlier ages of elementary education that is an incredible disservice to the students i think it should be something more akin to like swim lessons where like uh you know maybe there are some like eight-year-olds in the in the beginner swim class but there's also like some six-year-olds in the intermediate swim class like it's more about uh the the types of things that you can handle and the type of environment that you're in and things like that where just kids develop at such different rates especially early on in their lifetime and when you've got kids that are like five in the same classroom as kids that are four there's a huge uh difference in life experience that has happened 
for a five-year-old and a four-year-old. And um, that can, there's some four-year-olds that are like way advanced and there's some five-year-olds that are, takes a little more time to get some like social awareness. And um, I just think it would be a better system if we are going to use so much testing and evaluative measures to like pat ourselves on the back to say all these kids are passing. Uh, you could use some more effective tools in those testing to uh, allot kids into streams of education at which they are most likely to succeed rather than just sticking them with a cohort of people just because they are all similar in age within the within 12 months of each other. Yeah, uh, but what about the system where um, that my uh, relatives did where they're the dad was upset that he was like a summer birthday. So he was the youngest one in class. So he decided to hold his child back uh, like an extra two years before putting them into kindergarten (laughs) so that they would be the oldest and biggest. You'd be the bully of the school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How's that work? Yeah, I I think that, but you know, that goes back to like old arguments about sports and a lot of other things too. I just, it's, it's a weird thing that maybe it was just easy to organize information based upon a uh, year of birth or something when people started doing this. But I, I, I feel like it's, that's more of a, of just a, a coincidence rather than like an actual metric that should be used to evaluate someone's educational acumen at any point in their lifetime. Yeah. It should be based on height. Right, right. Definitely height and gender. Those are the mm. two things that we should base all educational acumen on. Yeah. Um, when did you grow? Um, I was very small. Yeah, I was very, very small, like up until eighth grade to the point where my parents took me to see like a geneticist or whatever. Um, Uh and they were like, oh, we could give him this medication. Oh yeah, I remember. But the problem is it'll only, he might only go like two more inches and then he's not going to grow anymore after that because of the whatever hormone stuff they were going to give me. Or we can wait and see. And so my parents decided, well, we'll wait and see. And then that summer I grew like seven inches going into my freshman year. And then between freshman and sophomore year, I grew like another three and a half. Because I was under five feet in eighth grade. Yeah. Okay. I was was talking to Miho about this because I think she said by the sixth grade, she was like the height she is now. Um, And I think I... Didn't I never had a growth spurt? I never like. She was like, "Your knees didn't ever hurt," and I was like, "No." Um, and I think I was just like medium height, pretty much through <laughs> elementary school, med- medium height in middle school, and then by high school, I just kind of like ninth grade to probably eleventh grade or something, just kind of steadily grew into my uh ginormous six one frame. You're just the perfect average just growing on the perfect slope of the line going up the graph the whole time. Never an outlier but, in any situation. <laughs> I just I you know it's felt like such a, a TV trope that I was like nobody actually goes through this because I didn't experience it where like all your clothes no longer fit from like 
the summer you got them. Yeah. I never had that. My clothes like fit and of you know i skated and stuff so i was probably buying larger clothes and then just cinching the belt so i didn't <laughs> feel it as much but yeah my school uniforms looked ridiculous my freshman year of high school cuz it was private school and like in the summertime in july we would go to the the uniform store and you know you make mm-hmm. your order for the year um and so you know they actually like measure you you know, length and height, they get the tape measure out, measure your waist and all that. And they're like, okay, here's your sizes. And, yeah. But then by the first day of school, like my mom, my pants were such high, high waders that, uh, my mom had to already start letting out the bottom hem of them. And so then like all, all my pants were too short, even with the hems let all the way out and unfolded for like <laughs> the whole year of my freshman year. It just looked stupid. <laughs> so dumb. Because we didn't have enough money to go buy another six pairs of fucking khaki pants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had, you know, we had that style come around, though. Kind of the, like... The, yeah, where everything the, was frayed on the bottoms. But it was right, frayed because yeah. it was too long, not frayed because the hems were let out and they were still didn't even come to the tops of your shoes. Well, <laughs> you're an innovator. Ah, <laughs> uh, well... That's good catching up. We need to do this every week. Yeah, we should. Should. Should do it every week. So tell me about this liquid asteroid. Well, it's not liquid. That's, it's a fluid. No. It's, it behaves like a fluid. I guess if you want to be like, yeah, I mean, concrete, even in its solidified state, is still technically a liquid. If you're that guy. No, that guy's wrong. <laughs> that guy's right. <laughs> introduce a little harmonic resonance into the into that steel and you tell me how that concrete behaves <laughs> i've seen a bridge wh- flap in the wind oh <laughs> uh, no yeah so uh last week or 10 days ago i guess no it's been more than 10 days now i don't know they haven't opened this thing yet so we- well what is today the 10th yeah Tomorrow is the big press conference, so it's a good thing we're doing this today because tomorrow is the big reveal day on what they find in the capsule. Uh, they have a big press conference tomorrow, I think, at 1, 1 o'clock in the afternoon from the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, Eric's former home, mm-hmm. um, where they're going to reveal the initial findings from taking apart the OSIRIS-REx recovery capsule and uh, evaluating the different fragments of soil samples and things that were found there um it's actually taking them a little bit longer than they anticipated to uh to extract the uh different samples from the uh from the box that they retrieved it with because uh it just got a whole lot more material than they thought uh, like yeah. they set this up to send it to an asteroid to go get it, you know, back in 2016 with all these ideas. It gets the sample in 2020, which I'll go to in a little more detail here in a minute. Um, but when it uh, came back, there was a whole lot of extra like small sediment and dark uh, carbon rich dust and things all around the seal and around the avionics parts of the box and inside the little gears and everything on the exterior elements of the capsule 
Um, and so they have like a protocol that they've been practicing at the Johnson Space Center for over a year about how to stage this retrieval of this stuff so that nothing gets contaminated. Because the main thing they're looking for is um, very primitive amino acids and other elements that would be the, the building blocks of life. Um, so the asteroid that OSIRIS-REx went to go and extract a sample from is called Bennu. And um, it is a carbonaceous asteroid, uh, the type of asteroid that is from the very, is a fragment of the very beginning of the development of the rocky bodies in the interior solar system um, from right after the birth of the sun. So this isn't a broken off piece from Earth or Mars or Venus or Mercury's formation. This isn't a broken off piece from even protoplanets that were hanging around before the final formation of the four interior rocky planets that we have in our solar system. This is actual initial debris that coalesced from the disks of dust and... Um, and uh, primitive elements that were produced by the formation of the sun. Um, this is just a little cluster of dust that didn't get sucked up into a planet that still hung out at the very nearest edge of the asteroid belt. So this is a time capsule. This is a, this is an asteroid that is of the stuff that ends up becoming these things that bombard earth um, four and a half billion years ago and bring uh, life, potentially bring water, bring all the rare earth elements that we find on the planet um, that we use for our cell phones and everything like that. Uh, all This is one of those. Um, so to be able to actually go to it, to grab a big chunk out of it and then bring that chunk back to evaluate, um, this is the first time in United States NASA history where we've had that kind of sample, but it's also the first time a sample of this type of asteroid has been taken and then brought back to the planet so that we can evaluate it. Um, there have been, you know, meteorites that have hit the planet that we have then gone back and looked at for some evidence of things. Um, there have been two different Japanese um, spacecraft missions, the Habayusa 1 and 2, that have gone and extracted material from asteroids before, but not this type of asteroid. Um, so it's very important when you get the material back to have a protocol at which you will not contaminate it with any of the stuff from Earth because the main thing you're looking for is the signs of life and the things that would have seeded Earth with, with all the stuff that we have now, so to contaminate it would mess up that whole project. So for over a year, they've been doing rehearsals every day of how to retrieve this capsule, take it to the Johnson Space Center, and go from clean room to clean room to clean room in these sort of nesting dolls of devices that um, isolate the capsule in these different nitrogen-rich environments so that it cannot be contaminated by anything, and the... And these nesting dolls all have uh, these big plastic containers around them um, with the big, you know, like you see in Stranger Things or whatever, where they're the big uh, 
rubber gloves that people have to like stick on that are part of the actual capsule that you like stick your arms through the wall into the gloves to be able to manipulate manipulate the samples mm-hmm. and though that is inside of a clean room and that clean room is also inside of a clean room <laughs> and so as you are taking one part of the capsule apart so they get to the outside first and the the lid has a lot of dust on it and the outside elements of the capsule of the avionics and the gears they have a lot of dust on it from the asteroid and they're like well we need to capture all that stuff even though it's not officially part of the thing that's inside the test tube that we're going to test we want to capture all this other regolith that just happened to be picked up on the spacecraft so first they got to extract that and then separate that into its own clean room um, before they can even start to take apart the capsule. And when they're taking apart the capsule, it's not just popping the lid open and then dumping out the dirt and then let's start combing through it to see what we find. The capsule has to be taken apart piece by piece. Every little speck of potential dust, like with super um, electron microscopes, is being evaluated on every single surface of the capsule to capture every possible piece of, of lint brought back from space you know you want every little microscopic dust to come back to be evaluated nothing is wasted because this is incredibly valuable material like you don't just go back to space to get another thing if you mess this one up so that brings back to just like the monumental task of what it took to do this um and this is the kind of stuff that just blows my mind which might bore a lot of people otherwise but i don't know to me this stuff is just uh, it's it's amazing that we live in the time where uh, w- this this type of thing could be figured out and executed so flawlessly. <laughs> this type of thing could be uh, figured out, executed, and really not make that big of news, right? Like, for the years that it's doing it. <clears throat> so it's, I so, guess there was a global pandemic uh, going on, but <laughs> true, true. Um, so a little bit of a precursor to this mission was a mission called Stardust, and that was a mission where we sent a. Uh, probe to fly into the tail of a comet and inside of that probe it had these arrays these big ears that would stick off to each side of it and inside those arrays were th- was this um, new material that uh, the Johnson Space Center had developed which was kind of like this space foam it weighed almost nothing but it was dense enough so that if like dust from the comet interacted with the foam the dust would get captured inside the foam um and so that stardust mission was sort of a proof of concept one that we could capture some stuff in space but two that we could have a mission go very way beyond the orbital plane of the earth capture something and then return back to the planet and give us the sample back so that was, it did, it worked. We got the comet samples. We were able to evaluate the stardust. Look, we found evidence of water, lots of other things that we thought were there from uh, the spectacle analysis of the comet. But now that you actually sent a thing there to go actually touch it and get the pieces of it and bring it back, you could confirm what the spectroscopy had showed you. Um, so that was a big moment. Um, this happened in uh, 2014, I believe. Anyway, so fast forward 2016. Uh, is the launch of the OSIRIS-REx in December. And to launch it to get to Bennu, um, you're going to have to use a lot of uh, gravitational assists from the Earth um, in order to get there. 
So the launch process is you launch it in December 2016 and then the the probe stays kind of within the path of Earth for almost a year. It just hung out with us as we orbited the sun and it was gaining a little bit of velocity, gaining a little bit of velocity. Then after almost 10 months, it did one solid burn maneuver to use the gravitational pull of the Earth as the Earth was swinging back around the sun to give it an assist to really push it up out to Bennu. Now, Bennu is on a different orbital plane than the rest of the interior planets. So if you think of like the Earth and Mars and Mercury and Venus all going around the sun, kind of like the equator of the sun, even though they don't quite go around the equator, if you just think of it in your mind like that, um, Bennu is on a different plane at a more eccentric orbital uh, plane and uh, at a wider elliptical angle to the sun. So you had to not only kick the uh, kick the probe out towards where the asteroid was, but you also had to kick it up above the plane of the rest of the planets in order to get to the asteroid. So the extra level of geometry to uh, to be able to program that into a probe that you're only going to get one chance to fire its little rockets it doesn't have much fuel on it you're only going to get one shot to do this one little specific maneuver and hope that <laughs> the gravi- gravitational assist plus your little burn that you do gives it just enough to angle it up just enough to now be almost just adrift on its own to go and intersect something that is only about 500 kilometers in diameter size wise it's not very big it's floating out in the middle of the darkness of space (laughs) yeah well it's the thing that i found so interesting about it is that like watching the videos where uh the old the videos from a few years ago like as they were approaching or whatever they're like this is the first time that we've known what the shape of this uh asteroid is and no or meteor and known what the what the spin of it is and what the color of it is which makes complete sense but it takes me all the way back to the uh the voyager episode we did where like i don't know why but it had like finally clicked for me that yeah it's flying past saturn that's an entire planet that is larger than our planet by magnitudes that nobody's ever been to nobody's ever seen up that close and i haven't even been to like more than 20 states you know <laughs> just to just to just to relativize it real quick <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like putting it in those human terms makes it so much more astonishing to me which uh you know i think sometimes gets left out of that like the the amazingness of like we have known about this object for however long, never knew the shape of it because it's too tiny and doesn't reflect light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's Which, it's know. so carbon rich that it is black like a piece of charcoal. It just s- absorbs all of the light from the sun. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. it's not bouncing anything back to us. Um, the, it was discovered, like, it was only discovered um, in the last 20 years. Um, and it was one of the few things, last few things that like the RCBO, um, telescope, uh, imaged, uh, or had evidence of 
you know, before the hurricane destroyed it. Um, and so there wasn't like, uh, we didn't have web or anything in space at the time to even point a direction to it, to look at it, to get a good eye, to see, oh, hey, give us just a one little close up view so we have a target to aim for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, it's amazing to me how much math goes into being able to do any of, like, it has to be so precise, you know. Uh, well, and there there was, there was great concerns about just the composition of it. Like, if you get there, there was a high likelihood that it was going to be just a completely um, sort of amoeba-like, swarm of just regolith very loosely held together if held together at all and there wouldn't be a surface and there wouldn't be anything you could extract from and there that might not be even like a solid piece of material there it might just be a bunch of debris kind of a bubble of debris floating in space yeah and that so that was a big concern because that's the way a lot of um asteroids are even ones that we have like mapped with telescopes and things they aren't the big, hard, solid objects that the telescope might tell us from the limited data that it can get. It's a lot of times they're just very loosely held together pieces of gravel. Um, so when uh, it arrives there, 250 million miles later, um, and and two and a half years after, or almost four years after the launch, um, the main goal is to just learn everything you can about it because you can't just uh, take a sample out of something you don't know. Um, it takes um, two years of just orbiting and analyzing the surface to decide where they're even going to try to have it take a sample, um, when they're going to take a sample. Um, and because you, you're not actively piloting this thing, uh, it's not a real-time like uh, drone flying maneuverability when you get to the asteroid. You're not like, okay, let's zip around here and take some looks with our camera. This guy is on the joystick. He's not going to mess this up. Um, all of that stuff had to be pre-programmed in a lot of ways into the mission um, for the approach and basically letting the probe decide how it was going to figure out the surface of the asteroid. So the probe approaches and it will orbit in a certain way to determine the rotation of the, of the asteroid. And then it would have to match that very sort of chaotic tumbling that the asteroid is doing. You want the, the probe to then figure out what that rotation is and then match it so that when it descends with its... Uh, sample collector it's not the asteroid's not just spinning freely underneath the descent of this thing you want it to be locked in its um, orbit with the surface that it's landing on so another crazy piece of mathematics that has to be done and you don't have a lot of fuel or corrective uh, thrust to be able to make a lot of adjustments in real time if uh, if you don't have it just right Um, go ahead the well the like the way that I don't know, I don't think you've mentioned like because you're getting to it, how it actually collected the sample. But to imagine it has to actually touch the asteroid in order to receive any sort of sample like that uh, intuitively makes sense, but it has to be stated. So the surveying process took so long because one as you mentioned you have to have the probe essentially decide how it maps the whole thing 
But if you're going down to touch it, you only have so much capacity you can bring back. And if you just decide like, oh, this looks like a nice kind of even spot and go down and it turns out to be like just a solid rock that you can't mm. like you've wasted the entire thing because you don't probably have enough fuel or anything for thrust to adjust, you know, yeah. around uh, the asteroid. So it's it's that's the reason that like all of that stuff needed so much precision and time to be uh, able to accomplish. Yeah. And once once they decided the sample site after two years of orbiting and doing surveys, um, then the the probe did three different full-on rehearsals of how it was going to do the approach, go down to the surface, get the sample, and then move away. And it every every rehearsal, it got a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to just make sure you know everything was going to work out. Um, like Matt Hoffman doing the big air. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but the the other thing is that not enough fuel or resources to do old school where you land on the thing, you anchor yourself down, you go, you dig up some stuff with some uh, uh, instruments, and then you storm on your little spacecraft, and then you do a big rocket burst, and then you take off from the surface of the thing again. Uh, no way that that can happen. You didn't take enough fuel. You don't have the resources on the on the probe to be able to do something like that. Um, so you have to come up with a pretty ingenious system to grab and go this sample real quick. So the the best way that I've seen it described is you kind of have to think about it kind of like a mosquito bite. Um, the the tag sam, which is short for touch and go mechanism, um, it's basically like uh, this extruder, the straw nose that sticks out of the bottom of the of the sample retrieval vehicle and as the as the probe lowers closer and closer and closer to the surface or as the sample retrieval vehicle lowers closer and closer to the surface it slows way down because one of the other things they found when they were doing the survey was that yes there are some solid structures there's even giant boulders sitting on the surface of this thing but it's also just kind of soupy this is kind of a soupy mess of regolith it's not gonna it might not necessarily even be solid enough we might go down and punch our little straw and it might just punch right through it we don't they weren't sure as to how solid the material was but they knew it wasn't going to be very uh stiff where the sample taking site was going to be um so they had to slow way down to where you're going like less than three inches a second <laughs> yeah they kept saying like the pace of an insect walking yeah which i've seen some pretty fast bugs <laughs> very a slow insect okay. uh, uh but yeah because one the you are going to have a little bit of an impact when the nose of the tag sam hits hits the surface if it's too soft and you're going too fast you're just going to impale it and you're going to basically uh, stake your <laughs> retrieval vehicle down into the asteroid and it won't be able to remove and come back to the orbiting vehicle and you won't be able to get the sample back to Earth. Um, so you want to go super slow so you don't accidentally stab yourself into the asteroid and make yourself stuck. You don't want to anchor yourself to it. Um, so what happens is it goes down and then right before it sticks, it puffs out this puff of, of uh, compressed uh, nitrogen 
uh, to sort of raise up any of the the loose little dust off of the surface of where the sample is going to be taken to give a clean spot for the tag sam to tap down. When the tag sam taps down, it just takes this little two ounce chunk, just like a little mosquito bite right out of the surface. And then it, like a spring or like a pogo stick, it repels itself back off of the surface and that sort of bounce helps push the sample retrieval vehicle back to the orbiter so that you can get the sample back on. Now, when the air burst hit and it caused the dust to come up, a lot of that dust got all over the tag sam and all over the sample retrieval vehicle. And so when they bounced back out, they saw, oh man, we are ejecting this huge amount of debris out into space. Is that because the... uh, the sample collector is leaking. Um, is it because the the mylar strip where the cap was supposed to go down got too much dust on it, and so it wasn't able to make a good seal, and so now all the sample we had is all falling out into space? Because one of the maneuvers they were supposed to do right after getting the sample was you close it, and then once the sample retrieval vehicle is a little bit off the surface of the asteroid, it was going to do this big spin maneuver, like a centrifuge in a laboratory. And that was going to tell you exactly the weight and some of the composition of the sample that had been retrieved by um, letting it you know, swing out to the end of the tag SAM arm. And you would know like from that force that got forced out to the edge of the rotating vehicle, uh, a bunch about the weight and the mass of the sample. But when all of the debris was floating around, they were worried, oh no, it didn't seal properly. Um, let's not do the spin maneuver. Because they knew that they got about two ounces. They knew that it was definitely there with all the debris. So they were like, just forego the spin maneuver. Let's just get it back. Let's get it sealed up and we'll just get home and see what happens when we get home. Um, so that is why when they got it back, it still had all of the dust and stuff all over the outside of the capsule and in the avionics parts of the of the machinery uh, because they didn't do that spin maneuver to try to relieve some of that excess dust that would have been there otherwise. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some stuff talking about them punching through because that was one of the first videos I saw and I was like, that doesn't look uh, exactly correct because... Uh, it really punches in there, and the the like surface of the asteroid, as they fully discovered, um, there were like some different theories on how it was held together. One of them was that there was more cohesion between the material that just the billions of years it's been together, or you know however long if it was part of a destroyed asteroid that kind of came together, whatever, was that there was some aspect more than microgravity holding it together and it appears that at least on the surface it's like only microgravity mm-hmm. holding it together so much so the the whole asteroid has uh point zero 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 seven seven uh g which is <laughs> g is earth gravity i could dunk on the asteroid i think <laughs> <laughs> you would uh, fall into the sun if you jumped off of this thing. <laughs> yeah, it is like the moon is 16% of Earth's gravity. And uh, this video I was watching, they were talking about if you dropped like a 50 kilogram weight on the moon, 
it would depress into the surface about half a centimeter. If you dropped a 50 kilogram weight on Bennu, uh, it would go 17 centimeters uh, <laughs> before stopping. And uh, that's if this 50 kilogram thing was approaching at the speed, like not falling in free fall, but approaching at the speed of what the tag Sam did. Uh, if But through their measurements afterwards, because they went over and observed their, you know, landing spot and everything afterwards, um, they had punched in like half a meter. Mm-hmm. There was six tons of loose rock that was displaced, uh, 12 cubic meters, <laughs> and the the crater is eight meters in diameter. Yeah. From like the the capsule, if you see it, like the thing that landed in the desert in what utah or something yeah um it's like i'm sure it's very heavy but it looks like a human could pick it up it's kind of the size of like those boulders that you see like the strongman competitions yeah like, yeah yeah the full, the full exterior of the capsule and everything it's kind of like a microwave still inside of the big cardboard box that you would get at best buy that's like the <laughs> yeah size. yeah yeah so it's not gigantic it's not big enough to create an eight meter uh 26 foot diameter crater so that's that just goes to show how loose it is yeah like, all, all it takes is just a little bit of a bounce and like a bunch of the regolith and rocks and things that were married to the surface for billions of years are were jettisoned out into space <laughs> and it which is yeah just conceptualizing that is so great but i loved learning the the mechanism they used to make sure that they like absorbed material because you can't just have a vacuum you know you can't like create a vacuum in a vacuum necessarily you kind of have to i don't know the way they did it was was genius how they placed it on there and then they like shot the nitrogen out of the uh the container or whatever in a downward motion so that it would kick up dirt. But by displacing that mass as it's touching the surface by displacing that nitrogen mass, it then like sucks up like a straw Mm -hmm. material into the containers that it's going to hold, um, which is such simple physics that, when executed well looks you know like it's just it's amazing how you're able to simplify things down to that level uh in a way that they're going to work like without you being able to control it yeah yeah that i mean that that's a that old pressure trick goes back to like old old original nasa right stuff nasa trying to get the gemini program and trying to figure out how to like protect an atmosphere in a capsule and things like that there's there's like a funny myth i think about how they came up with an idea for something like that that had to do with uh vending machines like when a candy bar gets stuck in a vending machine and creating like a negative pressure environment in order to remove the candy bar from a vending machine (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i don't know i was very impressed with this um interesting to just learn about like those asteroids and stuff. So what's the, as you were describing, it's, it's extremely old, but the reason that they're wanting to observe this asteroid in particular is because it has the, 
uh, well, one, it's going to be very close passing to Earth, right? Yeah, it's um, it's not. Uh, I guess what are I forget what they call the ones that are everyone thinks might hit someday Trojans or something like that. But the I don't think this one is classified in that same group. But it's going to have a couple near passes to Earth and maybe like in the 2100s something will have its closest rendezvous where it could impact us. Yeah. But they've, they've from this observation, they, 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 uh, observed on Bennu, these two specific things. One, uh, they were able to rule out for the next 200 years that it was going to impact earth, which Mm -hmm. doing the math of, those sorts of things you're like can't supercomputers just figure this stuff out already (laughs) now like that i mean that's kind of my go-to thinking process but the second thing that they really were able to observe on bennu specifically is i forget the name of it exactly but it's that process of because of its rotation which we didn't know about until this thing approached we didn't know what the rotation of it was because of the rotation it spins in enough of a specific way that one side spends enough time facing the sun and heating up and then rotating to the cool side and releasing that radiation from the sun that alters its orbit uh, slowly over time. And that's why supercomputers can only get to like 200 years of projection of something that we had a probe observing it for like two or three years specifically. Yeah, because uh, you don't the, you have to project all the possible uh, other objects in the solar system in order to right, accurately right. predict where any of them are going to be because they all are going to influence each other in some microscopic way, and that could have like great downline consequences as far as where your projection of the location of that object is if you didn't factor in a little bit of uh, eccentric rotation and one side getting overheated by the sun versus another that's causing its orbit to slightly adjust or that it might pass next to some other smaller asteroids that you didn't even map and those might nudge it a different way and that could totally throw it off where you predicted it would be a hundred years from now that on that side of things too i can't remember the exact numbers of it but what put it into perspective of understanding how just those minute changes you know uh, like the actual butterfly effect feeling of microgravity and space affecting things that might hit earth. Can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something crazy. Like if you had a railroad that was completely straight, if you bent it by like half an inch, like you raised one part of it by half an inch. And I don't know what the angle of it would be, but let's just say you, you pick, you bent it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember how far down it is. I think it's like under 10 miles away. It would already be like one mile in the air. <laughs> just the like just the accumulation of the error. Yeah, like just the that tiny shift at one point of it affects, you know, 10 miles away by that magnitude of being off from whatever the straight was you thought it was going to be. So and that's 10 miles is something we can all conceptualize. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a billion miles is not. So any <laughs> 250 million miles one way to an asteroid is tough to conceptualize. 
a bit. I was wondering, did what if they, I said it was I mean, 300 million kilometers? Is that easier? Yeah. Well, now I can do the conversions. Um, the Did they need to do anything in the pre-planning of this mission on how the probe would affect gravity-wise? Like you, Bennu? Like, like if, if our interacting with it would cause it to put it on a collision course with Earth type of thing? Yeah, yeah. Just affect it in a way that would be, you know detrimental to the well um part of the secondary missions on this on this mission one was as it was heading out going past the l4 lagrange point um it did a little maneuver to try to map as many potential not seen before close earth asteroids as it could it didn't detect any um while it was hanging out in that one spot for a little bit um but that was just part of its um, sort of asteroid detection mission. The other part of this mission was to measure how just not not even the impact of the sample taking, but to measure how having a small probe orbit around an asteroid could affect its orbital geometry. Um, uh-huh. So like... Not, not even so. In the future, the idea would be you don't actually impact uh, an asteroid coming for the planet for our planet. Um, you don't try to even knock it off course by impacting it with something. You send a probe or a few probes out, and you have them orbit in a certain eccentric pattern around that asteroid to just cause it to tilt in a slightly different way that takes it off course, like you were saying you create a small error in its direct path with earth. And so that error accumulates over time to make it miss it by great, great amounts. And that was one of the things they measured. How much does just our little tiny probe orbiting at a kilometer above the surface around this thing, how much does that change its, um, its geometry as that thing traverses around the sun? Okay. Yeah. Cause it's the, the other thing with the Osiris Rex, uh, probe is it's now going to observe like some actual other uh, close pass asteroid that they're predicting is it by the end of this century or next century that it'll come closer to us than most geosynchronous satellites are yeah yeah it'll be closer to the third of the distance of the moon or that's the prediction right uh so which is funny because when one one thing to say is like when osiris rex came back and it dropped its payload in September of this year to be dropped in the Utah desert, it released that at 69,000 miles away from the Earth. It, it wasn't like it came real close to the clouds and then dropped it off and then like shot back out. It was like <laughs> very closer to the or- distance of the moon than it was to the Earth <laughs> when it shot this thing back to the planet. And they knew with precision exactly where it was going to land when they had programmed it, you know, uh, almost a decade before, like (laughs) (laughs) the spot in Utah, they knew, they knew the day when they would release it at 69,000 miles away, what that trajectory would be to wrap around the earth and then enter the atmosphere. And even with the atmosphere, you know, fucking with the, with the dynamics of the capsule coming in and then the parachutes uh, deploying and the wind taking it, they knew within a very small, small window of exactly where that thing was going to hit in the Utah desert. Yeah, that's, it's so wild. And that's 
that brings me around to kind of the, you know, so why study this kind of thing? Why care, you know, other than just the fascination aspect of it? Um, and I think like it, it comes down for me to a point of like, why not? <laughs> like what, oh, yeah. what would be like the greater use? Let's say all the issues on earth are solved and everything. Sure. Um, someone like me who has deleted Twitter off my phone. Cause I can't stand all of you talking about football nonstop. Uh, I no longer have any current event news going on. So as far as so I'm there's concerned, not much the current world events is going, going on in Twitter right, right now, now anyway. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so the understanding that, you know, uh, there are issues on earth, but the point of why would you study these kinds of things? There's multiple reasons, but the biggest one for me just comes down to why not it's you, you discover, uh, potentially as we'll find out in the next week or so, um, was there a higher likelihood that water was just delivered to our early planet from asteroid strikes, which is insane to think about, um, which then makes you can make you appreciate, uh, things like life on earth for me hearing from you uh so often about the space stuff i now feel like nature includes like the universe it's not yeah. just you know the trees that i see outside i feel like Bennu is part of nature like you mm-hmm. you get this kind of broader it's a much more philosophical approach to why would you care about this kind of stuff um but if you really need a reason to understand why uh, it's so important to understand all of these things and study them, um, if we need to defend ourselves against aliens at any point, <laughs> to understand how many other life forms are out there and how they're going to attack us and what we can do to, sh- to change it. We need to know how to harness an asteroid and sling it at something just in case we need to use it as a weapon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's that guy in the expanse? Is it Mateo? Marco. Marco. No, no. Well, yes, of course. But the in the early, early first season, like episode three, when the the asteroid harvester guy gets uh Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hassled. Yeah. So he slings all his rocks at their ship. Yeah. Genius. Genius move. But but like I think in two things from that also is it worth it type of aspect. One, even if you include the cost of the Atlas V rocket to launch the thing back in uh, 2016, and you include in the additional mission cost for the secondary mission because we were able to send Osiris to the next asteroid. um, It costs as much as a carton of eggs now. Well, it's, I mean, it's half the price of, uh, of, of Jerry's football stadium to do all that still. <laughs> and I would venture to guess that you'd have close to the same amount, if not more people that are invested in actually doing work on this than actually were doing work on building that stadium. Um, when it, when it comes, when it comes down to it and it's, it's, even though this one is a NASA led thing, this is still global, um, sort of partnership. The people that are going to be evaluating the, 
the samples are not just a bunch of Texans in the Johnson Space Center. Like, they're people from all over the world. There's scientists from the ESA and from Japan and from China and from everywhere that are going to be evaluating this stuff um, as part, and then including that data in their own experiments that they, you know, move on going forward. Um, but I think the bigger thing and sort of the existential thing um, is that the biggest threat to us other than climate change as far as a planetary standpoint is concerned um even though it seems like we've got a lot of you know man-made things happening on this planet right now that are going to bring about our demise like the actual like biggest existential threat other than climate change is that we're going to be hit by an asteroid um and it doesn't even have to be a planet killer to really just ruin humanity um and we're just now getting good at or at starting to look for that type of stuff. Um, the investment in doing global surveys of near-Earth asteroids and stuff has been woeful. Um, and it doesn't, it's not going to take that much money to really do um, very in-depth analysis of those types of surveys of the entire um, sort of inner solar system of knowing where every single rock is. Uh, it's, we're, we have the capability to do it. Um, and it is going to, I believe, happen properly in our lifetime where we are going to have a much bigger discovery of a lot more near-Earth asteroids that are going to make very close passes that we weren't even aware of. And we are going to have to have some strategies for how to mitigate some of that stuff, even if it's not direct impactors. Just, we want to nudge this one out of the way just to be safe type of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And this type of mission uh is a proof of concept of that um and so it, it also is the thing that is the proof of concept that makes us not do a bunch of stuff that we see in sci-fi movies like try to blow things up with nuclear weapons in space and <laughs> a bunch of terrible ideas when it comes to these types of uh types of uh factors so that, that you're I all think about these deal. renewables. You're all about putting these miners out of work, and now you won't even give them a job drilling into an asteroid. <laughs> but the, but then, of course, you have the private industry side of it. Of this is a proof of concept of like retrieving something from an asteroid and getting it back. You already have um, actual space lawyers who are going out there claiming property rights on asteroids for different companies so that they could mine them and they could look for those resources. This is stuff that's already happening right now. Um, we know that like the idea of actually retrieving gold or uh, whatever from a, from an asteroid and trying to actually bring that back to being a useful resource on the surface of the planet is probably not a good idea or it's not a efficient idea uh, for retrieving those types of resources. But being able to understand the orbital dynamics of an asteroid and how to change its orbital geometry means that we are closer to understanding not not how to just take an asteroid and mine it but maybe bring an asteroid smaller asteroid from a further distance towards earth and then capture it in orbit around the moon or capture it in orbit around the planet so that then we can harvest it in space and then you use those resources in space to build uh your space stations and your different space resources that you need instead of having to fly them up there with a bunch of uh chemically fueled rockets all the time um so it, it the, all of proof of concept of a lot of those types of things are very important beyond the fact that it could just be the thing that shows us hey look 
we weren't created by some you know deity in in the way that we are here's the actual amino acids and the actual building blocks of life that are sitting right here and look these lego pieces just go together and that's how it happened what do we spend those 15 weeks on then <laughs> exactly uh, we actually know a space lawyer and he's like just a I need to introduce you to him because you would just be like, wow. This I'd is ask the him field a million questions and he'd hate me. <laughs> no, one, he would love it. He's like from Wisconsin, I think. Like the nicest Midwestern kind of. Okay. okay. Like, we could have some, would, we could share some curds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's pretty great. <clears throat> all right. That's all I got on Osiris Rex as I kind of vomited all this information on everyone. I hope it, I hope no. it was good. Tasted good. All right, man. Well, until next week. Bye.